from Psalm 67. They're going to come up on the screen. This is our passage for this morning that uh, Ben's going to refer to. But let's say it together as a corporate group of people. It's exciting that we can praise God for his goodness. Let's say together. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for you. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Great, okay, so last week, um, being the person that God uses, this week being the church God uses. And uh, as we... um, As we start, let me ask you two questions. First question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Essentially, probably the easiest and most biblical uh, answer to what is the gospel is it is God, sin, Christ, faith. That is the gospel. First, God. He is all important. We ought to know him and we ought to live for him. But secondly, sin, human pride, human self-absorption has destroyed our relationship with God, destroyed our relationship with other people and destroyed our relationship with the world. But then thirdly, Jesus Christ, God himself, has come into our world to rescue us from our sin. And through his death, through his resurrection, uh, he has provided the rescue plan. But in order to be rescued, we have to next respond in faith. We have to believe in him by faith. We have to make a whole of life commitment to follow him. So God, sin, Christ, faith. That is the gospel. But let me ask you a a second question. What do we do when we come together, and it's right that we come together and corporately worship God, it's what the Bible exhorts us to do, but what are we doing as we come together Sunday by Sunday to worship? Well, there are many different ways that you can conduct a worship service, and there are many different uh, things that you can include in that worship service, but there are some core fundamentals that need to be there uh, if it's to be an appropriate act of corporate worship. First of all, you need to start with a call to worship. Now, it's one of the reasons, if not the main reason, why for as long as I can remember, and I believe rightly so, we don't start with the notices. Notices may be important, but they are not. I know this is going to come as a shock. They are not the most important thing, okay, in the life of the church. They are not the most important thing as we come together corporately to worship God. The most important thing, and our primary focus needs to be, and that's why we do it first off, is to start by praising God. Start by raising your eyes to God, reflecting on who He is, His awesomeness, His omnipotence, the fact that He is the Creator God. So you have a call to worship, and we raise our eyes to Him. 
From there, there needs to be an element of moving to confess sin, to confess before him that we are not all that we should be. Um, And then we move to read the scripture and to teach the scripture, which shows us that in Jesus, God has provided the solution, provided the answer for the fact that we are not all that we should be. He has sorted our problems in Jesus, and that's what we reflect upon. And then from there, we need to move again to make a response, to lift up our hearts, our resources, our praise, our music. Uh, Sometimes, obviously, twice a month, we respond with the Lord's Supper, where we're communing with God, communing with one another, uh, and that's a form of response as well. But there needs to be that response. And then the final act of worship, and there's lots of official liturgical phrases used to describe this closing prayer, benediction, blessing but there's one that I never particularly liked until last week when I actually looked at what it meant I like it now and that is you'll see it formally on certain orders of service it's called the dismissal and I thought I don't like that much it sounds more dismissive than a dismissal alright you can go now goodbye you know that kind of thing but it's not because when you actually look at it what the word dismissal means is to send So at the end, that is another very appropriate form of response. We are sent. In other words, what we're doing as we go through a worship service is we are recapping, reliving the gospel. God, we look to him. Sin, our own unworthiness before him. The answer that he's provided in Christ and our response to Jesus. We're reliving, recapping the gospel as we come together to worship. And then, of course, as Jesus sent his disciples, so the dismissal. We are being sent, having relived the gospel, to be a gospel people. That's what we're doing. We're reliving the gospel. God, sin, Christ, faith in every worship service. Acknowledging God's holiness and awesomeness. Recognising that our sin has separated us from him. Hearing again how Jesus has dealt with that problem. And then responding in faith. We're responding by first receiving the mercy and grace of God. And then going out dismissed to share the mercy and the grace of God. See, a modern worship service, I don't know if some are, but a modern worship service shouldn't be based on a modern entertainment event. Because there's an essential difference. In a modern entertainment event, you probably have one or two warm-up acts, then you have the big event, and you enjoy that, and then you go home. But throughout that, you have been a passive spectator. We are not gathering together to be passive spectators Sunday by Sunday. We're gathering together to be active participants. Active participants in our reliving, recapping the gospel. Active participants in the gospel's call to send us out to be a gospel people. We are called in here to be prepared in order to be sent out to be a blessing. That's what we're doing Sunday by Sunday. So the questions, what is the gospel and what are we doing on a Sunday, as you bring them together, are two very important questions that we engage with and continually reflect upon. And if we're to be a church that God uses, then that's what it has to be about. So let's think about the two aspects that stem from this. The first is that our church is called to be a blessing. Our church is called to bless others. And this is a great little psalm that we've uh, we've just read together, Psalm 67. Because the first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, and if you want want to open that and have a look at it, that's great. But the first two verses of this psalm splice together 
two of the most important Hebrew scriptures that we have. They splice together, on the one hand, the priestly blessing, as we know it, and on the other hand, it's brought together with the promise that was made to Abraham. So, in verses 1 and 2, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. So there you have the splicing together of the blessing and the promise. The promise, uh, it's in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 26, and it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There you go, that's the priestly blessing that was given to Aaron. And we know it well, we often use it. And, you know, it says, this blessing literally says, that through the radical grace of God, his face shines upon us and blesses us. And he fulfills in that blessing the deepest desires of our hearts, the deepest needs of our hearts. And that's absolutely right. God wants to bless us in that way. But, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 67 tell us something else. They tell us that that with this blessing must also go the promise made to Abraham. And the promise made to Abraham um, in, in, in Genesis was simply this. I will bless you, this is what God's saying to Abraham, I will bless you that you might be a blessing to all the nations on the face of the earth. So you see, a a splicing together of these two things. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. Why? That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. Here's the principle. This is the fact. God never blesses you, except that you might be a blessing to others. God never calls you into intimacy with him, unless it's to send you out in sacrificial service. God never blesses you simply to fill up your happiness tank so that when you kind of feel you're getting a bit low, you can go and dip into the tank, have a drink and fill up your levels of happiness. Rather, what God is doing is blessing you to fill up the tank of your life, to fill up the engine of your life in in order to refuel you, in order to compel you to go out into the world and to sacrificially serve in order to be a blessing. See, here's the thing. God's blessing, if it's not shared, it rots. Let me give you an example. It's a little bit like the manna. Do you remember the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years? And the wilderness, by nature of what it is, is a desert. So nothing grows there. So there was no, there was no obvious food supply. So what God does is he miraculously supplies food in the form of manna from heaven. And it it appeared every morning, it's a bit like the dew on the grass. You've all gotten up in the morning and you've seen the dew glistening there on the grass, it's lovely. Well, the manna appeared like this, glistening on the ground, except that it wasn't like dew. What it was actually like was coriander seed. And you could gather up this seed and you could grind it up and you could make bread or cake or some such thing with it. And God miraculously supplied this every day to the Israelites. But he said to them, you're to go out there and you're to gather up just enough for that day for you and for your family. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. 
Okay, so it was just, he said, don't start trying to store it up and get a bit extra, so pack it away in the cupboard so that, you know, for a rainy day, that kind of thing. Uh, You can't do that. He said, because if you do that and if you keep it, it will rot and it will begin to stink. And there's a principle, God's blessings that are kept and stored up and held close to our hearts begin to stink. They begin to rot. Now, I I talked about this last Sunday evening, and I've actually done a little bit more thinking about this, so I'm going to share this in a bit more depth with you. But this is a a very interesting study, and it also makes a very good point with regards to what we're thinking about. It's this, at New York, University of New York, there's uh, there's a centre there called the um, New York Child Study Centre. And basically, it's a centre that studies children and families. And they publish a monthly newsletter with some of the results of their surveys and the work they're doing. And in May 2007, their newsletter published the results of a survey that they'd done that showed that the families with a household income of between $75,000 and $160,000 a year, which I suppose is about somewhere between 50 and 120,000 pounds a year. Essentially, they were looking at a family where at least one of the parents was a professional. Maybe both of them were professionals. And they were looking at the impact on children growing up in professional households. And this is, uh, this is what they came up with. Over the last 20 years, there had been a, an escalating psychological uh, set of problems and teen suicides in children growing up in those families had doubled in 20 years. What's going on? These are children from good, wealthy, I guess you'd say middle class backgrounds. And the newsletter said this, complete financial security, excessive freedom to learn and explore, and the provision of a very wide range of interesting opportunities for entertainment, recreation, and education. That's how it began. And you stop and you think, well hang on a minute, These are wonderful things. This is what we strive to give children and and grandchildren. This is is what we want for them. And we think that, you know, if we shower our kids with these things, surely that's the best. Well, just listen to the whole statement. Complete financial security, excessive freedom to learn and explore, and the provision of a very, very wide range of interesting opportunities for entertainment, recreation and education have been discovered to often lead to apathy, laziness, an inability to commit to goals, attitudes of entitlement, indecisiveness, moodiness, irritability without provocation, low self-confidence and insecurity. In other words... If you pile your children high with blessing, with affirmation, with prosperity, and they are never taught to sacrificially serve some cause that is infinitely more important than themselves, then those blessings in their lives begin to rot. And this is what happens with blessing. This is what happens with God's blessing, unless it's shared. But let me actually just come back to this study for a moment, because I think there's a a very important message here for the church um, in this day and age, as we think about uh, these kind of... I should have got it out earlier, shouldn't I? That's not good. There's only part of it. Bear with me. 
There we go. Because this is quite interesting, that there is actually a sociological condition at the moment known as affluenza. Probably do suffer from that shortly after Christmas, yeah. (laughs) Affluenza. We are an affluent society, and yet it's having all sorts of repercussions. We have to be able to teach our children, our young people, that, yeah, to be blessed with all of these things is fine and good, but it's not good if the mindset that goes with it, I must always have more. Or, I want these things, but I want them because it's all about me. That's when the problem starts. That's when the blessing starts to rot. That's when the blessing starts to stink. How do you begin, as a church, to help people to find their way out of this this snare, this trap? Well, first and foremost, I think it's important that you actually start early. You know, when children are toddlers, simple explanations such as, you have to share or be kind, don't snatch that toy away, are important statements to make. The why can come later. At that point, in in a young child's life, they have to just know, that isn't right. It isn't going to be tolerated. And then, you know, as they grow and begin to understand, we need to connect selfishness and unselfishness to faith lessons. The Bible has some of the most wonderful stories about sacrificially giving. And we need to use those stories to help explain that this is, this is the way to, uh, to, 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 to live out your life. Don't miss the opportunity to say these examples need to be followed. We need to begin to crush the entitlement monster. You know, our, our culture has done a fantastic job of instructing parents to protect our children's self-esteem at all costs. But one of the unintended consequences of this barrage of self-image building is that many of our children have developed a real sense of entitlement. They are entitled, in their own eyes they believe, they are entitled to have the right friends, the right schools, the right clothes, the right gadgets, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And parents, teachers in church, need to listen out for the clues that will appear in that child's language. Because if you feel you're entitled to these things, you will start talking that way. And you need to listen out for the clues in the child's speech and behaviour that entitlement is taking hold. And then remind them what they have is good, but it's a blessing. And that God intends for us to share blessings, rather than constantly strive to consume just more blessing. And you know, we need to build a culture of sharing in the home. Sharing time together, sharing the chores together, sharing a meal together is important because that's building into a child's life and a young person's life the importance for these things. Um, We need to set the stage properly. You know, so much of how our children see the world, uh, their vision for life, is built upon what they've learnt from us. And you know, too many people now want to go into professions... They want to be a doctor, for argument's sake, purely because they say, well, I'll make a good income if I'm a doctor. What happens to people saying, I want to undertake that profession because I actually want to serve others. I want to benefit people in the community. And, you know, that, can only, that, vi- that change of vision, that change of worldview can only come about if we empower others and help others, teach others to see that, uh, that we're gifted with talents, we're able to do these things, but we need to share that gift. And you know, I just wonder where this comes in, praising acts of generosity. 
Do children in our culture today get as much praise for doing something selfless and sacrificial as they do for getting an A in a maths exam? Do they? I suspect they don't. Because I suspect in our driven age of success, it's actually more important to get an A in a maths exam. Let's praise them when we get things back in balance. You know, it's good with kids to get them to name their blessings aloud. They might feel a bit stupid at first, but it's not a bad thing to do. Um, You know, it's good as families to be talking about saying, yeah, God has provided for us. And then saying, why don't we thank him? Why don't we pray those blessings back to him? These are just ways that we can begin to change a mindset that has so insidiously creeped in that I don't think half of us are even aware that it's happening. And here's another thought I had this morning. Probably half of the young people and young adults, young parents who are teaching in church Sunday schools have grown up with this. They probably don't know any different anyway. So maybe there needs to be an intergenerational dialogue between the generations so that we involve the opinions of those who can remember a time that wasn't quite so me-orientated. Because this is what scripture is saying, therefore it must be an important message that the church has to carry in this, the 21st century. That blessings, when they're hoarded, start to stink. Look, God never calls us into an intimate relationship with him Uh, He never blesses us except to go out and to be a person, to be a church that in turn blesses others. So that's the important thing. Our church has been called to be a blessing. But let's think about the type of blessing that we're called to be. Here's the second thing. The blessings of truth, justice and community. Because this psalm, and there are lots of uh, different attributes to being a church that blesses others. But there are three picked up upon in this psalm. Three things we're told to do. Share the truth, do justice, and, uh, and build community. But here's the first one. Share the truth. What truth? Well, it's answered for us in verse 2. That your ways may be known on earth. Ways, okay. Your salvation among all the nations. Salvation. Ways and salvation. This means God's truth. Your ways means his law. His word. But we're not just to share the the, the ways of God, the law of God, the the word of God in a general way. Because it also says specifically there, share salvation. In other words, how people can get right with God. So we're meant to be sharing the gospel. Do you see? We relive it Sunday by Sunday and then we're dismissed to share it. Now, I can tell you that uh, at one of um, Frinton's better-known sporting institutions, sporting clubs, I have a number of friends um, who have said uh, to me over the years, yeah, it's all right you lot believe in the gospel, it's all right you lot believe in all this Christian stuff, we haven't got a problem with that, you can go to church, do whatever you like. But why do you have to come here and try and make us believe it? Why don't you just mind your own business? I won't tell you that it happened at the golf club, but... uh, Do you know, I I thought about this, because you think, oh, I don't want to be insensitive, and I don't want to be a pain in their backside, but I thought about this, and actually, you know, what what they're asking is they're asking me, they're asking us to be emotionally unhealthy. They are. Because, you know, if you see anything, if you hear anything, if you experience anything that fills you with joy because it's a life-changing experience, then you're going to want, no, you're going to need to share it, aren't you? 
So they're asking you to be emotionally unhealthy um, by saying, don't, don't share that with us. And, and here's another thing, you know, they're actually asking us to do something that nobody asked the rest of the world to do. You know, the rest of the world, you watch, have conversations with people and watch how often this happens. People say, oh, you really need to see that, you really need to read that, you really need to hear this, you really need to experience this. Now, they're normally talking about a book or a film or a piece of art or, I don't know, something or another they think, or music that they think you should experience. But they're doing that all the time. You really need to experience this because they like it and they want to share it with you. But suddenly, when it comes to the gospel, why don't you mind your own business? So it is important, you know, if it's filled us with joy, if it's changed our lives, then yeah, we should need to want to share it. And uh, and it is important. But here's the second thing. The the, the, the psalm tells us that if we're going to bless others, we're going to be a church that blesses others, we need to do justice. It says in verse 4, the nations are glad, they're singing for joy. I'm very pleased. Why are they doing this? For you, God that is, rule the nations justly. So in other words, it's telling us that joy comes out of not just knowing God, but also knowing that someday he's coming back. And as he comes back, he's going to be putting everything right. You know, he's going to come back to wipe every tear away from our eyes. He's going to come back to rescue the captives. He's going to come back and put the whole of the earth and creation back into the state in which it should be. Now, look, we're not utopians. I don't believe for a moment we're sitting here believing that there is going to be some, uh, some huge shift and a justice is going to descend upon us suddenly because of some political, military or economic program that's going on. We know that's not going to happen. No, no, this is a different call. This is a call to be a people who go out and bless as a sign of a future kingdom that is coming in all its fullness. We're going out to do this as a sign that we know what God's will is for this world. And we're going out showing a snapshot, a sign of what is going to happen when God comes back and accomplishes all that he has planned. In other words, we're pouring ourselves out into fighting disease, fighting poverty, fighting injustice, wherever it occurs, as a sign of the coming kingdom. So a church that God uses is a church that will go out and bless others by sharing the gospel, sharing the truth, and by fighting injustice, fighting poverty, as a sign and disease, as a sign of the coming kingdom. And then there's this third element... And you know, this is a bit surprising at first. It doesn't seem to fit with the other two. And yet it is just as important. And that third element is, having shared the truth, done justice, it's build community. John says, or sorry, Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning at verse 21, Father, the world will know that you sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying the world will know the gospel. The world will know that I am from you. The world will know that I have come as saviour. When will they know that? When the world sees my disciples living together in visible and remarkable love and unity. You know, the word centrifugal means literally to force outwards, to propel outwards. 
And the word centripetal means to draw inwards. And you know, there's a centrifugal aspect of the gospel going out, and there's a centripetal aspect. And it's simply this. There is no better way than to propel the gospel outwards in a way that it will be believed than to draw people's eyes inward so that they can see a community of faith that is living out the gospel. We propel it out by drawing their eyes in. What I'm saying here is that when the world looks and sees a multicultural community of love and praise, that's powerful. When the world looks at the Christian church and sees people getting along inside the church who could never get along outside the church, that's powerful. When the world looks in and sees different races, different genders, different generations humbly listening to one another, humbly learning from one another, uh, humbly bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, that's powerful. You know, out in the world, when uh, people have a blow-up in their relationship, next course of action is to avoid each other like the plague. What happens when the world looks into the church and sees people not avoiding one another, but actually constantly reconciling and forgiving one another? I'll tell you what happens. It has a powerful effect on them. You know, out there, money... And power are used selfishly. What happens when the world looks in and sees money and power in the church being used communally, being used unselfishly, being used to to give rather than to get? It's powerful. In other words, being a blessing out there has everything to do about our life together in here. And there's just no better way than to blow the gospel out there, than to draw people's eyes in and let them see a radical community of faith living very, very differently, living a harmonious, beautiful, loving community life together. If we want to be the church that God uses, if we want to be that church this year, then we have to be a blessing. We have to share the truth. We have to do justice. We have to build community. And remember what I said at the beginning. That has everything to do with the gospel and being a gospel people. And it has everything to do with what we do Sunday by Sunday. Where we come in and we relive that gospel. And then at the end we are sent out to live out that gospel. See that's actually what we are being told to do Sunday by Sunday. That is actually what we're then sent out to do Sunday by Sunday. And at the end of every service Sunday by Sunday, that's what we should be gladly saying yes to. In 2015, do you want to be a church that God uses? Do you want to be a church that blesses others? Great, then let's make a commitment to that. Let's pray. Father, we... We do come before you knowing there are so many in our community for whom the brokenness, the darkness, the shame and the pain are overwhelming. Lord, help us to bless them. Help us to be light in their darkness, healing in their pain. Father, there are so many within our own church family. 
for whom the darkness is great. For whom the burden is heavy. And yes, Lord, we do think at this time of Betty, of Gary, of Lorraine. We know the ravages of that chemo. We know what they have to shoulder at this time. And we say, Lord, help us to bless them. Help us to be the light of Jesus to them, the love of God to them. But Lord, we've been thinking about what your word says. That before we can go and share that blessing, we have to receive that blessing. And it's out of receiving from you that we are able to go and to be the church that you've called us to be. So I want to pray now, Lord, that right now, by your Holy Spirit, you would touch our hearts and you would just create in our hearts a desire to want to respond to what you are saying. Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit of God, come now. Prepare us to respond. Prepare us to respond. Amen.